Southwest Alaska Native communities want jobs for their people, but they also worry that a large mine could ruin the pristine environment and harm nearby salmon streams around which their cultures revolve. Today, we'll hear stories from the Bristol Bay region where those indigenous communities are wrestling with the prospect of a large copper and gold mine. I'm Lauren Dixon, and you're listening to Alaska Water Wars. It's a program that shares the voices of Alaska Native people as they navigate the benefits and risks posed by new natural resource development projects coming to the region. In this particular show, we're going to focus on the Pebble Mine. So today, we meet a spokesperson from the mining company at the Pebble Mine site. We'll also hear from an Alaska Native activist against the mine who's in Dillingham, and an attorney in Anchorage representing tribes also opposing the project. Journalist Daisha Eaton has reported on the Pebble Mines since she began working in Alaska in 2011. Hey, Daisha. Hey. So what's happening with Pebble Mine? Bring us up to speed. So back in 2014, the EPA under President Barack Obama said it was too risky to build a large copper and gold mine upstream from the world's richest salmon fishery. They issued a proposed determination to limit the size of the mine. But in the spring of 2017, the agency under President Donald Trump had started a process to reverse that. And the company that wants to build the mine, they wasted no time moving ahead. They brought on a new investor at the end of 2017 and filed their first permit application with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The application was made public in early January, painting the company's plans for the project in more detail than ever before. The mine's footprint would be nearly 11 square miles. That's smaller than they talked about before, but larger than the EPA said was okay. It would require digging up wetlands and mean a tailings facility for holding waste from processing materials that would sit in the earthquake-prone region into perpetuity. Then, in January 2018, the EPA suspended their plan to do away with the Obama era proposals to restrict mining in the Bristol Bay watershed. But the EPA also said it would continue to consider permit applications from the Pebble Limited Partnership. This project has been controversial in Alaska for a long time, pitting poor communities closer to the mine site, which want jobs, against villages closer to Bristol Bay, a hub for commercial fishing. And as this first segment shows us, the project is being influenced by global economic forces as well. Copper is in demand due to industrialization in Asia, and a big mining company is renewing its efforts to develop a deposit in southwest Alaska. Pebble Mine has been in the works for years, but has faced resistance from fishermen, local governments, environmentalists, and tribes worried about impacts to water. The Environmental Protection Agency issued a proposed determination that the mine was too risky to go forward, but after President Trump took office, the EPA settled with Pebble to withdraw its proposal. Surrounded by windswept tundra, lakes, and streams that flow into tributaries leading to Bristol Bay, Pebble Limited Partnership spokesperson Mike Heatwool explains how the state-owned land would change if the copper and gold deposit is developed. We're standing on what we call the, uh, the overlook. So this hill, this high point that we're standing on, this would actually be where the open pit would be? That's, that's one uh, possibility. While initial plans by the Pebble Partnership, owned by Canadian mining company Northern Dynasty, have been pared down, they still include a camp, 
mill, crusher, power plant, tailings pond, and water treatment facilities. Although other big mines are in the works, if permitted and built, Pebble would be the largest in Alaska. It's roughly about half of what had been talked about before, and this would be a 20-year mine life for the project. Alana Hurley leads United Tribes of Bristol Bay, a group formed to fight the project. Hurley is Yupik, Alaska native, and lives in Dillingham, about 100 miles southwest of the mine site. She's also a commercial fisherman. Bristol Bay is the last place on earth that salmon thrive. We should care about that as a society. Nearly half of the world's salmon return to spawn in rivers and streams that flow into Bristol Bay. Those waters support a $1.5 billion commercial fishery. Indigenous Alaskans have fished there for millennia and still do. That's part of the reason the EPA under President Barack Obama in 2014 proposed setting limits on what a mine could do and how big it could be. We're excited about this new day. And so we're going into permitting with a much smaller project. That's Pebble Partnership CEO Tom Collier. He says the company also no longer plans to use cyanide to get the last bits of gold out. The community was adamant that uh, they didn't want the risk of cyanide in Bristol Bay, so we're not going to do it. Matt Newman, an attorney with the Native American Rights Fund, says the potential for damage to valuable waterways remains high. You're going to affect water flow. You're going to affect water temperature you're going to affect turbidity. All of those natural occurrences that allow salmon to continue doing what they've so successfully done in Bristol Bay. While the EPA's watershed assessment supports such concerns, Pebble officials say they should be investigated during permitting. Many tribes worry if the mine is developed, it could operate longer than 20 years and grow much larger, triggering development of more mines. And what Northern Dynasty CEO Ron Thiessen said during a presentation at the Denver Gold Forum this past September doesn't allay their fears. This project, um, it's a a multi-generational opportunity. Its size and scale um, will lead to a very, very long-life mine. Pebble's spokesperson says any expansion of mining would be contingent on a proven track record. So, Daisha, do you think the mining company could expand the project later on? It's entirely possible, Lauren. That's why local activists are so concerned. But as you heard from the spokesperson for Pebble, they say they would only expand if they've shown they can do everything safely and without hurting the environment. Pebble's been in a battle with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for years. The company says the agency was overreaching by proposing the mine was too risky to go forward before it even got into permitting. But it was the local indigenous people who requested the EPA step in, right, Daisha? Yes, that's right. The process is pretty complicated. Next, we'll hear from an Alaska Native commercial fisherman on a beach in Dillingham, more from the CEO of Pebble Mine, and from the attorney you heard earlier who's working with indigenous people to fight the mine. Let's hear more about the complicated processes that led up to the controversial mining project submitting its first permit application. In 2014, the Environmental Protection Agency made it clear the Pebble Mine was too risky to move forward under the Clean Water Act. After years in court, EPA recently settled litigation with Pebble, removing another perceived barrier for the company. Robin Samuelson stands on a beach that President Barack Obama once visited and where a salmon famously spawned on the president's shoes. We are on Kanaknak Beach. To the right is the Nishigak River, and that's where all the salmon go up and spawn. How so, far are we from the Pebble Mine here? 
Right up that way. Dillingham is about 100 miles from the proposed pebble mine. Samuelson spent most of his life as a commercial fisherman. He says having President Obama visit the southwest Alaska fishing town was a big deal. It felt like someone in Washington was finally listening to tribal concerns about development of Pebble Mine. Samuelson is Yupik, Alaska native, and a chief for Chogyang Tribe. He was involved in Tribe's request that the federal government step in. Well, we the tribes petitioned the federal government for a 404C process. That's the section of the Clean Water Act that authorizes EPA to deny or restrict the use of an area when it determines there will be unacceptable adverse effects on water. EPA in 2014 issued a proposed determination that a large mine like Pebble was too risky to move forward. Agency officials spent three years analyzing peer-reviewed scientific studies before issuing the proposal. But Pebble CEO Tom Collier says it's not about science. This issue of process, of whether or not you get to file an application before EPA kills you, is not an issue of science. It's an issue of process. Congress passed the Clean Water Act in 1972 to regulate discharge of pollutants into U.S. waters. EPA has started the 404C process 30 times, but only completed it 13 times. It's usually used once a project is in permitting. Collier says EPA's preemptive use of the act was wrong. I thought it was just a colossal abuse of process, and uh, we began a very elaborate multi-pronged strategy to convince EPA that that was a mistake. The mining company filed three lawsuits in Alaska federal court. A judge gave Pebble a preliminary injunction on one of them. The injunction stopped the EPA from finalizing its proposal. Matt Newman with the Native American Rights Fund says Pebble's strategy was to run out the clock. They did everything humanly possible under the rules of civil procedure in federal courts to delay moving forward in that lawsuit because they knew we have to get to an election. They ultimately achieved their goal to get past the Obama administration. In May 2017, Collier met with new EPA head Scott Pruitt. Later that summer, EPA began the reversal process. In the fall, it held regional hearings in Dillingham and Iliamna to collect public testimony. Samuelson says he sees the debate over what the EPA did as the first fight in a longer battle. I know now that if I died tomorrow that uh, the people of Bristol Bay, the younger people of Bristol Bay, will stand up and take them on. And he says his people are ready for the next round. Wow, what a process that's led up to Pebble submitting their permits. Quite a lot of drama as the wheels of bureaucracy turn. But some villages have mixed feelings about the mine being built, right, Daisha? Yes, that's true. But even those which are neutral on the project are concerned about what the mine could do to water. Just digging up wetlands for construction or if there were an accident. Okay, let's head to the teeny village of Igiagic, where we'll meet a mother and daughter wrestling with the change a mine could bring to their ancestral home, plus a university anthropology professor who's done research in Bristol Bay. Commercial fishermen are united in their opposition to development of the pebble mine in southwest Alaska. But the thousands of native people who live in the region are divided on the issue. While some villages remain neutral on the project, taking a wait-and-see approach, many also worry that mining could impact drinking water, fish, and their cultures. 
Julia Salmon's life in the small village of Igiagic alongside the Quijack River revolves around subsistence. Those are the two main things of my life I seem to know of, fish and berries. Igiagic is situated where the Quijack River flows out of Lake Iliamna, down toward Bristol Bay, about 50 miles from the mine site. It's fall, and her freezer is full. Down below is all um, fish, smoked salmon, or two-day smoke, the dried ones, and fillet. <laughs> and the top is filling up with berries. Julia is Yupik, Alaska native. Where she lives, having a full freezer represents its own kind of wealth. Living in accordance with ancient traditions, people are happy to share with their extended families, the elderly, and the community at large. Julia says when she first heard about plans to build a mine upstream from her village, she felt angry. When I first heard about it, I said, F them, I don't like that destroying up by digging up by ground and putting all these toxins. Her daughter, Alexana, is more diplomatic. The change that will come with a development of that size will affect all levels of our life. Alexana is village council president and holds several other leadership positions in the region. Igiagic has officially remained neutral on the project, but people are worried about changes mining could bring, she says, especially to water. Well, our river is crystal clear and everybody really prides being able to still drink the water. It's the best tasting water on earth. And we have all different species of fish that we rely on and the migrating birds. And that tundra landscape supports a lot of different berries. Berry picking is very popular. The arrival of salmon each summer brings the community together. It's an unbroken link to their ancestors, she says. And University of Alaska Anchorage professor of anthropology, Alan Boris, agrees. He contributed research from Bristol Bay Native Villages to the EPA's watershed assessment, on which the agency based its preliminary decision protecting Bristol Bay from a large mine. The people of those villages have successfully made the transition from prehistory to the present based on the same keystone species, salmon. So they've been harvesting salmon for 4,000 years, and uh, that's continued to this day. This is a rare thing in America. It's a rare thing in the world to have made that transition and have many of the traditional practices still intact. Alexana Salmon says she knows her life in Igiagic is special. Life there shelters her, she says, from the consumerism that drives minds to be built. Even so, she recently accepted a paid position on an advisory committee for the project. The mining company is going to prove that fish and mining can coexist. They will prove that. It is existing elsewhere in the world. For a moment in time, they'll coexist. She says if the mine is built, she wants to be sure she has a seat at the table as choices are made that could affect the region for a long time to come. So even leaders in a neutral village like Igiagic are concerned. Yes, for sure. I had no idea before I went to Igiagic that some villages in the Bristol Bay region actually drink water out of their rivers. It's that pristine. Okay, now there are some villages, there are a few that are for the most part very enthusiastic about the mine, right? Yeah, Lauren, these villages are in the minority from what I can tell from my research on the ground. But they're close to the mine, struggling economically, and they want jobs. 
They have Native Village Corporation land butting up against the project or close by, along with businesses there. And they can make a lot of money if Pebble Mine is built. The project would also provide jobs to community members in an area where jobs are scarce. All right, next we go back to the mine site to hear from a worker already making money and then to Kakanok across Lake Iliamna from the proposed mine site. There, Daisha is going to talk with a native leader who says his region needs the project. We'll also hear from a young person making money already by working a job at the man camp at Kakanok. Communities near the fishing industry of Bristol Bay are larger and often have more seasonal and year-round work opportunities than those inland near the proposed Pebble Mine. And some residents, despite concerns about possible impacts to water quality, are eager to take jobs on related infrastructure projects that would be the mine's foundation. Clinton Hobson plugs exploration drill holes that are leaking water at the Pebble Mine site, where it's rolling tundra, streams, and lakes as far as the eye can see. It's hard work, but hey, it's, it's a job. Hobson is Athabaskan, Alaska native. He lives about 50 miles across Lake Iliamna from the mine site in the tiny village of Kakanak, where jobs are scarce. He says he's happy to have the work. I got bills to pay. Gas ain't cheap in the village. Electricity ain't cheap. Oil ain't cheap to heat the house. There's nothing cheap in the village. Gas, electricity, and oil can be up to four times prices in the lower 48. Store-bought food is expensive, too. And hunting and fishing are key to food security. Asked whether he shared concerns about the development's possible impacts to fish with others in the area, he said, There's nothing to say on that. That's up to them. I'm just here just trying to get, a, trying to get some work done, trying to make some money for the family there, support them. He makes almost $20 per hour in the seasonal job. Outside Kakanok, Brad Angusson, who works for the Alaska Peninsula Corporation, shows off a project that sprung up in an old gravel pit over the summer. This is the Kakanok Man Camp. There's approximately about 12 to 15 tents here. We've got a nice uh, lakefront view of uh, Lake Iliamna in front. You've got the mountains behind us. Angusin is Sukpiak, a Lutik Alaska native, originally from South Naknek, and now lives in Anchorage. His mother's family is from Kakanok, a community of about 170 Yupik, Sukpiak, and Athabaskan Alaska native people. Kakanok is in the Lake and Peninsula Borough, where the unemployment rate fluctuates from a low of around 9% in summer to a high of 16% in midwinter. And even if they don't want to work directly for the mining company, many residents are desperate for jobs to help them stay in their villages. The village corporation that Anguson works for represents Kakanok and four other villages in the area. Some of those villages, he says, are on the verge of disappearing. Alaska Peninsula Corporation has villages that are what I consider to be nearing the brink of abandonment. And we know that poor economy and lack of infrastructure are elements that contributed to those communities' current situation. Angusson says the mining company came to Alaska Peninsula Corporation about building the camp. The corporation quickly saw employment opportunities materialize. The camp employed 15 residents this summer. 27-year-old Nicholas Mike, who is Yupik, is one of them. After the Marine Corps, he came home to find only spotty part-time work. Until this summer, Mike says he makes $20 per hour, and the money is critical to support his family. Well, it means a lot. I get to stay home, uh, close to family. I don't have to deal with traffic in Anchorage. 
<laughs> Mike says he's neutral on Pebble, although he's grateful for the work. He does see one drawback, though. I haven't been able to really do any subsistence this summer. Angusson says he knows that developing the mine is a risk to the area's pristine waters, but he hopes it can be done safely and dramatically change the economic outlook for the region. Daisha, was everyone in Kakanok for the mine? No. All the people who wanted to talk with us were, though. But we did see signs of resistance, a no pebble logo on a baseball cap, for example, stuff like that. But clearly the leadership in that village is leaning towards supporting construction of the mine. And so is the village corporation representing them, which could benefit financially if that mine's built. And people there really do seem to want jobs that allow them to continue living there. So now we turn to some smaller villages in between the proposed mine site and Bristol Bay. Yeah, these communities really rely on subsistence, fishing and hunting and gathering from the land and the waters for a lot of their food. And they have to hunt and fish and gather wild plants in order to live there. They're very traditional. Shipping food in to supplement their meals is part of life, but most of them get the majority of their food from the land and from the water, and a lot of it is salmon. They're super worried that the mine would wreck the local fishery and their way of life. Next, we'll hear some more from Pebbles' CEO and also from a city manager in the teeny village of Ekwok, from an elder in another village, Nistuyahawk, as well as a professor of political science regarding international indigenous rights and resource development. Sandwiched between communities clamoring to get a piece of the mining economic pie and commercial fishing towns close to Bristol Bay that oppose Pebble Mine are villages that depend heavily on salmon for subsistence. People there say protecting water as a cultural resource is critical. Pebble Partnership CEO Tom Collier says a new plan for a smaller mine is aimed at addressing concerns Alaska Native villages have raised. I think people need to listen to where we're headed now and uh, what our plan is and what we're going to take into permitting because it is dramatically different. He says the mine will be smaller and they don't plan to use cyanide to get the last bits of gold out. Collier says his company is taking tribal concerns seriously. I am, and I think Pebble is, completely respectful of the culture, of the fish, and of the water. Our difference of opinion is that I think we can build this mine without doing any damage whatsoever to those things. Native people in villages who rely on salmon for food and cultural practices are skeptical. Like Crystal Jensen, city manager for Ekwok, a village of about 100 people located on the Nushigak River, midway between the proposed mine site and Bristol Bay. Jensen, who is Yupik, says she believes a mine of any size will mess up subsistence. Without our subsistence, we'd be starving. I'd say 75% of our subsistence is fish. Elders just upriver in New Stuyahawk, a village of about 600, agree. Timothy Wanhola says any size mine is just too risky. Every year we put up fish. I've known about it since I was small, and now I'm an adult, and I'm having children that are having their children and still living in the same culture. It hasn't gone away, and it will if something happens. Matt Newman, an attorney with the Native American Rights Fund, compares what the mine could do to what happened to lower 48 tribes in the 1800s. This is the equivalent of pushing the Lakota out of the Black Hills to mine for gold. This is the equivalent of pushing the Plains Indians out 
killing off all the buffalo. Daly Sambo DeRoe is Inupiaq and a University of Alaska Anchorage professor of political science. She says the 2007 UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which the U.S. supports, specifically addresses indigenous rights and extractive industries, requiring the opportunity to be consulted, the opportunity to consent before the approval of such a project which may affect their lands, territories, and resources. Alana Hurley, who is Yupik, lives in Dillingham and works as a commercial fisherman, also leads United Tribes of Bristol Bay, which was formed to fight the mine. She says they're ready to fight on every available front. We are preparing and we'll do whatever it takes whether it's in the courtroom, whether it's laying in front of bulldozers. The EPA has received more than a million comments on the issue, most supporting protection of Bristol Bay. Hurley says that doesn't surprise her because Bristol Bay is known around the world for its wild salmon. But she says it's not just about fish as food. To Hurley and others, it's about a cultural right to do what their ancestors have done for thousands of years. This is an indigenous rights issue that all people should be concerned about. The EPA issued a statement that said it will consider all public input before making a decision. So what's happening with the EPA now, Deja? Well, in January 2018, the EPA suspended their plan to do away with the Obama-era proposals to restrict mining in the Bristol Bay watershed. But the EPA also said it would continue to consider permit applications from the Pebble Limited Partnership. Pebble brought on a new investor at the end of 2017 and filed an application with the Army Corps of Engineers. And that application became public in early January. Pebble spokesperson Mike Heatwool says there are changes to their plans in the application. The size difference compared to our early estimates of 12.7 square miles is now at about 10.7 square miles. So we've been able to make the facilities in and around the proposed mine site more compact. We're proposing a natural gas pipeline from the Kenai Peninsula across Cook Inlet and then under Eliamna Lake in order to get natural gas to our mine site in order to run our electrical generation. In addition, the application shows the company wants to build roads, an ice-breaking ferry, and a port on Cook Inlet to transport minerals out. The Army Corps has hired a third-party contractor to administer the environmental impact statement process. Leaders of village corporations representing native communities closest to the proposed mine site that could make a lot of money if the mine's permitted have expressed concern that their voices are not being heard, that they're being drowned out by native and non-native activists opposing the project. Our concern is that we as a group don't want to be isolated or removed from the act of self-determination. That's Brad Angusson with Alaska Peninsula Corporation. Angusson explains he and other leaders want to make sure the project gets a full and fair review. Will Pebble happen? I don't know. One way or another, Pebble is going to be an impact on the Alaska Native people from our region, and we have an ability to steer that. I don't want to be cut off from that process. Angusson added that his village corporation has recently added three new subsidiaries for a total of five in anticipation of the mining company's needs. These processes will be unfolding during 2018. Well, what about the activists against the mine? I also talked with Alana Hurley with United Tribes of Bristol Bay, the group opposing the mine, and she says the permit application just confirms their concerns. 
there is no way that the current application will not impact salmon. We're still talking about tons of toxic waste that would have to be stored forever at the headwaters of our watershed. Miles and miles of road and pipeline, a mega port. She says even as the project moves into the permitting stage, the resistance to the proposed pebble mine isn't going anywhere. This is mining 101. They will get their foot in the door and expand, expand, expand. And if they're allowed to put in this immense amount of infrastructure in one of the most sensitive areas on the planet, it will open Bristol Bay up to mining and literally devastate the world's last great sockeye salmon fishery. Well, thanks so much for your reporting, Daisha. Thank you, Lauren. And thanks to photographer Brian Adams. You can check out his photos, which go with Daisha's stories. They're found at alaskawaterwars.org. Thank you to our project editor, Jocelyn Estes. We also had help from Joel DeJesus with social media and from Frank Chithlook. And we'd like to thank the Alaskan band Freshwater for providing the theme music. And thanks to the Alaska Humanities Forum, which provided a mini-grant to help pay for travel to do this reporting. And to KNBA and Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, which also helped pay for travel for this reporting. You can learn more about the Alaska Water Wars Reporting Project and find this podcast at alaskawaterwars.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.